What do you know about the multiverse? Viz had his theories. He believed it was dangerous. He was right. That's Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts, discussing the multiverse with Wanda Maximoff in a new Marvel movie titled Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. The idea that our universe is just one of multiple universes, potentially inhabited by many ever so slightly different versions of you, me, and Doctor Strange, pops up again and again in Marvel movies. And it's also a hotly debated hypothesis in real-world physics. Is the multiverse for real? Brian Green, a theoretical physicist at Columbia University, says the concept isn't as crazy as it sounds. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, your host for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Open up your Eye of Agamotto amulet and join Brian Green and me as we talk about the multiverse and other strange lore on the frontiers of physics. The multiverse is a godsend for comic books and science fiction movies. If you get rid of characters in one story and then have to bring them back for a sequel, you can just say that there was a rift between parallel universes. Lo and behold, you have alternate timelines with alternate versions of Spock in Star Trek or Doctor Strange in Marvel movies. Like wormholes and faster-than-light travel, the movie multiverse contains a dash of real-world physics. For decades, physicists have debated concepts such as the many-worlds hypothesis and the string theory landscape, concepts that leave theoretical room for the existence of a multiverse. To explain the science behind the fiction, I turn to Brian Green, who works on string theory for his day job and has also hosted Nova documentaries explaining the topic for general audiences. I started out our Zoom conversation with a key question that moviegoers might have as they watch Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Is it madness to believe in the multiverse? Well, there are some scientists who would call it madness. I think their view of the world is a little too restricted. And if you allow for some willingness to consider ideas that are purely mathematical at the moment, but really well motivated from the mathematical side of things and which do connect up with certain observational features of the world in a rather indirect, but to some of us compelling way, then you are naturally led to the possibility of a multiverse. That doesn't mean it's real. It doesn't mean it's out there. Only when you have true experimental support do you have confidence in your ideas. But I think it does weigh the scales on the side of sanity as opposed to madness. Why even use the concept? Uh, We're doing very well, it appears, in just the one four-dimensional universe that we have. Why even bring up the topic? Well, I'd say there are two reasons. One is there are certain theories of cosmology, certain theories of how the universe began and evolved from the beginning until today, which connect with observations. So we have a fair degree of confidence that these ideas are going in the right direction. But then when we pursue their mathematical implications to their fullest, the math tells us that the Big Bang may not have been a one-time event. There may have been many Big Bangs giving rise to many universes. 
So it's really the mathematics that kind of grabs us and says, hey, consider this possibility because if you're going to use me to explain observations of the microwave background radiation or the abundances of different atomic nuclei, if you're going to use me for that, the mathematics says to us, then you've got to also look at the other mathematical implications that I seem to suggest might be real. So that's one reason why we take it seriously. The other is perhaps even more directly connected to your question. You said we're doing pretty well in this one universe, and I would agree with you, we are doing pretty well. But there are some questions that have resisted solution in this one universe of ours. And we can go into more detail if you'd like, but the bottom line is when you expand your horizons and allow for a multiverse, some of these really deeply, profoundly perplexing questions, they kind of evaporate, they go away. And so if you want to do even better than we've done so far in this one universe, then certain questions suggest you should go to a multiverse. People typically talk about such questions as how the universe arose, uh, the Big Bang, and also there's this issue with gravity being very different from electromagnetic and other fundamental forces, and why is that? Are those the sorts of topics that you're talking about? They're deeply related to it, but I have a more specific issue in mind, which has to do with gravity that you made reference to, but a weird property of gravity that has emerged in the last 20 years, which is that gravity has not only the attractive character that we all know about, you drop something and it falls, Earth and the object are attracted to each other. Gravity also appears to have a repulsive aspect as well. When we look at the distant galaxies, they're not only rushing away from us, which we've known since 1929, the universe is expanding, but everybody thought the expansion should be slowing down over time because gravity is attractive, after all. It pulls things back together. But the observations have shown that it's actually speeding up in its expansion. And to explain that, we make use of a quality of Einstein's view of gravity that if there's a diffuse energy filling space uniformly, it gives rise to an outward push instead of an inward pull. And we can use that to explain why the distant galaxies are rushing away faster and faster. That's great. But the puzzle is, when we use the observations to determine how much of this dark energy, as we call it, this energy-filling space, the number we get is really odd. In the natural units, it's like a 0. 0.000, like 122 zeros and a 1. And when we look at a number like that, that's so close to zero, but not exactly equal to zero, and that non-zero quality is really important to explaining things, we say to ourselves, how in the world are we ever going to explain a kooky, crazy, maddening number like that? And one answer that people have come to is, well, maybe we'll never explain it from a detailed calculation, which involves ordinary numbers like 2, 1, pi, e, right. you know, these are the, sort of the ordinary numbers that we're used to. But rather, we need to imagine there's a multiverse. How does a multiverse help? Well, in many of our theories, each of the universes populating a multiverse would have some dark energy, but the amount would vary from universe to universe to universe. And so if there are enough universes, 
then one universe among that vast collection will have the amount of dark energy that we observe. It's sort of like, you know, you go into a clothing store and you're looking for a sports coat, right? Are you going to find one that fits? Probably. Why? Because there's a multiverse of sports coats. There are many different sizes on the rack. If there are many different universes on the rack of this multiverse, each with a different size, different amount of dark energy, then you're basically guaranteed to find the one that you're looking for, our universe. And so it at least transforms the quality of the puzzle from something that we wanted to explain from a first principles calculation to just an environmental detail in this vast collection of universes. And I think this is where we start to get into comic book science, because uh, the idea of the multiverse has given rise to the idea that there may be many Brian Greens talking with many Alan Boyles that are slightly different from each other. And uh, the comic book version has the idea that these different universes in the multiverse can cross over into each other. And so how, how much reality is in that comic book concept? Well, the first part of it sounded pretty good to me, actually. However far out and bizarre it may sound when you look at the mathematics that describes these universes. And I, I keep coming back to that because I want people to recognize this is not wild imagination of people who are working too hard and just trying to come up with something that's odd and different. It's really the mathematics that drives us. And because of that, we can analyze these universes. And one of the things that we find when you analyze the math is what you just said, that there would very likely be copies of you, me, everything else scattered throughout these vast and different universes. The reason for that is really quite simple to understand. You and I, we are just collections of particles in a particular arrangement. And when we look at these other universes, we find they'd also be filled with particles. And when we look at the number of different possible arrangements of the particles, it's a finite number. And so if you have a sufficiently large number of universes, there are just so many different ways the particles can be organized before they start to repeat. It's like if you have a deck of cards, my favorite analogy, you start to shuffle it, you get different order of the cards, but sooner or later take a long time, you will get the same order that you began with because there are a finite number of orders of the cards. So if you shuffle it enough times, they're going to repeat. And so in the multiverse version, when configurations of particles repeat, you get versions of the macroscopic object those particles constitute. And so if my particular collection of particles repeats out there, including the particles making up my brain, making up my memories, making up my thoughts then that collection of particles somewhere out there in the multiverse will think that it is me. And it really will be me. Why am I somehow the priority character in this multiverse? If there are many collections of particles that look like this and think like this and have these memories, they all have an equal claim to be me. And so when people hear that, they're like, oh, okay, now we're in Crazyville, you know, Madville. But... There are many other crazy sounding ideas that have come from the mathematics that we use to describe the physical universe that have been confirmed in the past 100, 200 years. That's why we're not so willing to simply write off an idea because it violates our intuition or our sensibility of what the universe could really be like, because the universe doesn't care 
about what we think is right or wrong. It just is. And so we have to follow the math and the observations to determine how the universe is actually constructed. And then there's that issue of crossing over from one universe to another. And that yeah. goes to a, a larger point is uh, the evidence. Where is the evidence? How, how do we know yeah. that this concept has? So I, I actually meant to say, I began my answer to the last question by saying the first part of what you said sounded pretty good. Uh, and it was the second part that you now have brought back into the conversation that seems less likely. The ability to cross over from universe to universe, that is not something which naturally emerges from the mathematics. So I should say there are various flavors of multiverse. There's not sort of one version that the equations allow for. But in, in, in the vast majority of these, it's not that I could get in a rocket ship and travel out and visit another multi, another universe in the multiverse. Or cast Either a spell the, for that Well, matter. So there are many reasons. One is, in some versions, the different universes in the multiverse are moving apart at a speed faster than the speed of light. So even if somehow we could get into that intervening region, we wouldn't be able to traverse the ever-widening gap between the universes. In other versions, it's even less possible than that because the universes are not connected in the manner that allows for a spatial journey to go from one to the other. They exist, they are logically sensible, but they don't occupy the same domain of space. So they're more abstract because of that, but from the mathematical side of things, they again make perfect sense. I mean, a version of that comes directly from quantum mechanics, the so-called many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. These, these different universes, they live in what's known as a Hilbert space. It's this abstract mathematical, high dimensional mathematical object, but, but it's not as though a particle can transit between the different worlds. So back to that question about the evidence, if there isn't mm. any crossing over, how do we know that there's any there there? Well, that's the, the sticking point for some physicists. They say, we'll never, ever have evidence for this. So now we're talking philosophy. I mean, it's not meant to be or derogatory to philosophy. <laughs> Philosophers really think hard and rigorously about things, but they aren't so focused on observational data to support their ideas. And so some would suggest that we have moved into philosophy because of that. I don't agree with that. In the sense that, yes, it's possible that we'll never have evidence, but it's not because it's impossible, logically impossible to have evidence. For instance, let me give you an example. In one version of the multiverse, the universes that are created, say, from different big bangs, there's a chance that if they're created close enough together, that as they expand, they could collide with one another. These two universes are sort of like bubbles in a cosmic bubble bath that are growing and the bubbles can hit each other and if they do that impact should leave an observable signature in radiation heat left over from the big bang notice i mentioned it before the cosmic microwave background radiation and so people have actually looked for that signature in this heat left over from the big bang now they have not found any signature yet, at least not a believable signature, but the very fact that people are turning telescopes to the sky to look for a pattern that might be the residual imprint of other universes, 
we're in the realm of observational science, experimental science. And so that is just one example. There are a handful of other ways in which those other universes could make their existence known to us. And so, yes, I do consider it at the edge of possibility that we'll have that evidence. But that, to me, makes a big difference. There's a big, profound difference between impossible, logically impossible to ever test an idea versus, hey, it's really difficult. It's unlikely. That's really different. And the latter is physics. The former would be philosophy. I remember a few years back, there was discussion about uh, the data from the Planck uh, Space Telescope finding evidence of a cold spot in the cosmic uh, background radiation. Uh, and I, I think that that there's been a lot of debate over whether that was a real effect or not. I wonder if you can talk about that. And then also the Large Hadron Collider, which is in the midst of starting up again, whether uh, yeah. there might be something that the LHC could contribute to the evidence. Yeah, I think both are really interesting. So, look, the CMB has been, the Cosmic Archway of Background Radiation has been a, a cornucopia of data that has allowed us to refine our cosmological theories. And in fact, I would say that even the dominant theory that people talk about today, inflationary cosmology, the reason people have confidence in it is not because of the motivations back in the 70s and 80s that led to the theory. There are a bunch of problems, the monopole problem, the flatness problem, the horizon problem, some, some very profound puzzles in cosmology that led to development of that theory. But it's really the microwave background radiation and inflationary cosmology's ability to predict how the temperature of that radiation should vary from one point in the sky to the other that's really given people confidence. And yes, over the years, there are a variety of observations which say, hey, there's an anomalous cold spot or a hot spot or the, the statistical variation is a little bit different from what we thought and so on. So these are very fruitful things to have happen. They allow us to refine our theory. So far, nothing has come up that has caused us to have to like throw earlier ideas away and go back to the drawing board. And indeed, there have been some people who have suggested other universes as an explanation for some of the things that we've seen. Most of us would call that pretty far-fetched. The data is not really pointing in such a direction with an adequate force that drives us to that explanation. But again, it's an interesting place where at least the word multiverse comes up when talking about observations. I don't, I don't really take that all that seriously. However, the Large Hadron Collider, I think, is a better example, the second example you raise, because in some of our theories that suggest that there are extra dimensions which is, again, part of the mathematical jigsaw puzzle of string theory, which has its own version of other universes. If we could prove the existence of extra dimensions, more than left, right, back, forth, and up, down, that would be a mind-opening moment, which would then allow for some of these other multiverse ideas to perhaps be bathed in a more brilliant light. And so the idea was, slam proton against proton, from the debris that's created, the math suggested some of that debris could drift out of our dimensions and get crushed, crushed down into the other dimensions. And if that happened, we would know it because the debris would take away some energy. So the energy before the collision would be a little bit bigger than the energy that we would measure after the collision because some had gone to the other dimensions. That was the hope. 
So far, we've not seen that. And some would say, well, okay, you know, there's proof of pudding. But, you know, as you say, the machine's coming back. We don't know what data it's going to find. But again, it's an experimental question. We'll know one way or another whether this is a fruitful approach for establishing such a weird idea of extra dimensions. And look, you know, with uh, that kind of a potentially profound upheaval in understanding, of course, it's going to be an unlikely outcome. It's rare that physics comes to that kind of a radical change in thinking. And so whatever it is, it is. And we're just going to press forward and let the data speak for itself. Years ago, you actually came up with a system that laid out nine different types of multiverses, ranging from a quilted multiverse to the ultimate multiverse that includes every possible permutation of scientific theory. Do you favor a particular concept? Well, of all of those, the ones that most naturally arise are the so-called inflationary multiverse. And I think I may have even called it that in the schema, this multiverse that I mentioned before where there are multiple big bangs. It really is a very natural consequence of this inflationary theory of cosmology. And it's so natural that some people say inflationary cosmology is no longer a good theory because they're not fans of this prediction of other universes. Others say inflationary cosmology is correct and therefore we now have evidence for other universes. It's a different perspective on the same situation. So that is a, a powerful one. The quantum mechanical multiverse, it's in a more curious state. This feature of quantum mechanics, it says that you can only predict probabilistic outcomes, an electron 50% chance here and 50% chance there. And the question that science has been trying to resolve for nearly 100 years is, well, if you measure the electron and you find it here, what happened to the other possibility? Natural answer, well, the other possibility just went away. But the math of quantum mechanics does not just allow it to go away. That's the puzzle. One possible resolution is you find it here in one universe and another copy of you finds the particle there in the other universe. That is actually really straightforward interpretation of the mathematics of quantum mechanics. And so people have taken that idea seriously, the quantum mechanical multiverse. That one I'm somewhat more skeptical of because I think it raises other mathematical problems that I don't think have been adequately addressed. But I need to say, if you were to speak with some of the folks who've been working on this for quite some time, there are some who say, we've proven it, it's done, there's absolutely a quantum mechanical multiverse, it's the only way of interpreting this theory, it's done, and it's so done that they say, we don't want to talk about it anymore, stop bothering us, it's a done <laughs> deal. And I'm like, wow, that's a, that's a pretty high level of confidence right there for such a far out idea. But it's just to show that there are vastly different perspectives on where we stand on many of the multiverses in that nine category, nine level categorization that I gave. I wanted to turn a little bit toward the fiction side. Uh, Doctor Strange is only one of the fictional characters that have been sucked into the multiverse at the movies. Uh, I even found a, 
online list of the top 10 multiverse movies, including Star Trek, mm. Sliding Doors, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. This all reminds me of how Star Trek and Star Wars and similar movie uh, epics gave the general public a popular version of concepts such as relativity and time dilation or black holes and wormholes. Is it a good thing or a bad thing for movies to dive into the multiverse? Well, look, my general view of movies is I, I well, when I used to go to a theater, I haven't been in a theater in a long time, nor as many people, but, you know, go to a theater, I let the movie wash over me and I don't sit there analyzing it, trying to find, you know, holes in its description of scientific ideas. What really bothers me is when a movie sets up rules at the outset and then it breaks its own rules. I buy into the rules and then in order for some or other story element, they change the rules midway through. That feels lazy to me and that's why it bothers me, not because of the, the scientific ideas. But back to your question, overall, yeah, I think it's really good if some of these ideas are brought out in a variety of different ways. Look, I do it, and many of my colleagues, and you as well, do it through writing about these ideas. And we try to be really accurate about the things that we write about. Uh, there are NOVA programs that do it, you know, through a more filmic way. Uh, the Big Bang Theory, right? It tried to do it in a, in a more humorous way, just to inject some of the words of science. So I think it's a good thing. And I would also note that it's done in many different ways. Because even in the list that you just mentioned, you know, sliding doors, I... I uh, I'd like that film. I wouldn't really even call it a, a sci-fi film. It's just a really good story and a really good film that in a, in a poetic way integrates this idea of parallel realities. And that allows the film to reach a completely different audience, right? There are many people that would never go near a sci-fi film, such as my wife, for instance. But a great story, a good story like Sliding Doors, that that brings in these ideas can reach a broader audience and i think that's a good thing you've uh, built up quite a filmography for yourself ranging from public tv documentary series like the fabric of the cosmos to appearances on the big bang theory and in a movie called the last mimsy I, i'd love to hear some of the inside story about bringing theoretical physics to general audiences and whether you have a favorite science movie, whether it's something you've been involved in or something that you've seen that, that really gets these sorts of concepts right? Yeah, I mean, a, f a favorite film is always a tough one because I never, I never really remember them. But the ones that always come to mind are usually fairly old. I thought Contact was, was I really enjoyed that a lot. Uh, certainly Inception, more recent film, I thought did a really nice job of raising questions of consciousness and, and dream states. In fact, I, I did a program with uh, dream researchers just yesterday, and that, that came up in the conversation. So it feels like it was quite quite relevant and timely. But the old, my own things that I've done, they, 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 they do differ radically. In a show like Fabric of the Cosmos or The Elegant Universe with Nova, the focus is much like when we are writing about things, when you're writing about things, you want to get it really right. You want to get it really accurate. At the same time, you don't want the person to you know, surf away to another program or stream some other film. And so it's a balance between entertainment and science. And it's always a very tough line to walk to figure out the right balance between those. And you never please everybody. But for instance, you know, when I'm on a show like, um, like The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, 
you know, you got six minutes to get a hit that would really, you know, grab somebody with some of the ideas. So you're not so much interested in laying out the intricacies of the ideas. It's more in the land of spectacle and hoping to inspire people to be excited. And so we did one on the 100th anniversary of general relativity a few years ago. We did one on the discovery of gravitational waves, you know, with we set it all a, a version of LIGO, the laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory with lasers going across the stage and and Colbert playing the role of two colliding black holes yelling into the device and causing the interference fringes to shift. So I, I think that's all really good because look, we live in a in a country and in a world where Science is certainly not risen to the place that it should be, the, the, the place of confidence and, and the place of having a sense that science illuminates the path forward based on evidence and reasoning. We're clearly far from that goal. And if you can get people excited about the capacity of science to reveal these curious and wondrous features of the world, then I think you're moving in in a better direction. Speaking of that, way back in 2008, you and Tracy Day founded the World Science Festival, which is another way in which you're sharing the wonders of science with the wider world. The past two years have been a challenge for everyone due to the pandemic, and it's been especially challenging for events like the World Science Festival. Tell me what it was like to deal with that challenge, and how do you expect the festival to evolve in the years ahead? Yeah, well, way back in uh, in the spring of 2020, we had to make a snap decision regarding whether we would hold the festival that June. And clearly, we made the right decision by canceling that event. And again, we felt like we needed to be out in the public making a public statement of, look, the science is suggesting that it makes no sense to have large public gatherings. So an event that's based on science is not going to have that kind of a large public gathering. And we just forthrightly went out with that statement and canceled that festival and subsequently canceled the, the, the ones that followed. We went instead to digital production and digital delivery, because after all, our team led by Tracy, Tracy Day, comes from the world of broadcast. And so live events and broadcast is something that's sort of right within the bread and butter, you know, the sweet spot of what our team is able to do. And people should check it out at worldsciencefestival.com or on YouTube. We've created some pretty stunning stage productions in which it's all done remotely, but nevertheless, the participants are brought together in a virtual environment that's visually enticing, allows for better visuals than we could do in a live event. And so in some ways, these events supersede the live ones. We're going to go back to live quite soon, probably this fall. But the, uh, the uptick in interest from digital events that can reach obviously a worldwide audience as opposed to an audience that's sitting in seats. You know, we're doing something like, you know, two million views a week of the of the programming. And so that feels pretty good, you know, to reach on the order of a hundred million people a year with this kind of content feels like it can can make a difference. So we definitely want to go back to live because there's something different about an audience really being in the same space with leading thinkers and leading minds. But in the interim, creating these digital programs has been um, a challenge, but one which I think has had a lot of impact. Do you want to talk about what else you're up to uh, on the theoretical front as well as in the public outreach front? 
Yeah, sure. Now we're doing a lot of stuff. You know, it's kind of relevant to our conversation. There's there's interesting mathematical questions to do with the multiverse that we've been taking a look at, trying to understand the statistical distribution according to the mathematics of these possible universes, trying to understand the stability, whether these universes would last billions of years or where they would quickly collapse and leave just a few that were long lived. So there, there are all sorts of interesting questions of that sort. I've got a little pet project going on, strangely enough, exploring some hidden features of Einstein's special theory of relativity, right? You think 1905 is now 2022, must be fully understood, and yet there's some curious mathematical qualities that we've been studying with a couple of colleagues, Jenna Levin and Dan Cabot, which I think are kind of curious and kind of interesting. We'll see where that goes. And on the uh, sort of for the public front, big project is uh, we're, we're starting to do a adaptation of my latest book, Until the End of Time, for television for film and and that really is probably closest to my heart of all the projects that I'm doing because that book for me is a real synthesis of a whole lifetime of thinking about questions that are scientific of course but also go into the questions that we as human beings have asked since we could ask questions like why are we here and what's the nature of consciousness and what actually is religion? What's language? Where does it come from? Why has it stayed with us? Creative expression, why is it ubiquitous across the species? Where's the universe going as we look from today toward the future? And what does that tell us about the things that matter to us most? And so that project, bringing that to film, I think there's a real opportunity to break the mold of bringing science books to film because the topics are so wide-ranging that I think a more artistic approach is called for. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing how that turns out. So you're going to be turning 60 next year. What discoveries do you hope to make, or at least you hope to see, before you wind up your career? Well, time has been the issue that to me, speaking of growing old, that I think is the most perplexing of the qualities of modern physics. Time is everything to us, right? It is the substrate within which experience takes place. And yet we have these fantastic clocks that are astoundingly accurate at measuring the passage of time. And yet if you ask the seemingly basic question, okay, what is it that you're measuring? What is this thing called time? That's a very hard question to answer. And moreover, we don't even know if time is fundamental. Maybe time is a quality that emerges in certain environments in the cosmos, but there may be other environments where the concept doesn't even apply. And so really coming to grips with the deep nature of time, to me, remains the, the most perplexing and the most enticing of questions. And associated with that, of course, is can we finally come to some understanding of how the universe really began? We have really good theories. We made reference to a number of them earlier of how the universe evolved from a split second after it came into existence. But none of these theories say anything about why there is a universe at all, why the universe came into being in the first place. And so... Maybe that's beyond the reach of the human brain. Maybe it's beyond the reach of the kinds of tools that we have, mathematics and observation. But 
we're going to keep pressing onward and maybe we'll gain insight into those deepest of questions. Well, I really have loved your work over the years. And I think if we're talking about Dr. Strange, uh, you've been into some strange corners of physics and, and you're continuing to do so. So I, I have to say that in this little corner of the multiverse, you'd have to qualify as Dr. Strange. Much. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for the time. My pleasure. For more about Brian Greene, the multiverse, and the Marvel movie, check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com. You'll find links to the World Science Festival's website and to a story I wrote about Brian's latest book, Until the End of Time. I'm also offering a Doctor Strange poster and comic book as the grand prize in a trivia contest to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Cosmic Log's creation. Thanks to Brian Green and Emily Logan for setting up the interview, and thanks to James Emley for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.